Hello, my name is Johannes Boot, and welcome to another episode of Hot Off the Hip. Hot Off the Hip is dedicated to connecting and inspiring young professionals in West Michigan through shared stories and ideas. Today, it is my great pleasure to welcome Alexa Reddick to the show. Alexa is particularly interested in law and building strong communities. She obtained a master's in women and gender studies from DePaul University after studying social science at Michigan State. She currently works as the Director of Development and Communications at the Ed and Nancy Hannenberg Children's Advocacy Center and volunteers her time on the Board of Directors at Mosaic Counseling, as well as various other capacities with the Lakeshore Nonprofit Alliance, Grand Haven Human Relations, and the Disability Network on the Lakeshore. Alexa, I'm excited to have you on the show and look forward to digging into your stories. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Johannes. It's nice to see you. My pleasure. So what has brought you to um, the Holland area, or if you've grown up in the area, how has your experience been so far as a young professional? Well, it's actually more like what brought me back. So I grew up in Grand Haven, uh, went to Grand Haven High School. Um, I've got pretty deep roots in the area. I've got family that's been here for several years. And uh, yes, I went to Michigan State, like you mentioned, and then went to DePaul. And um, being in Chicago was wonderful and has vast opportunity, quite honestly. But I found myself craving the lake from this side of the lake and wanted more connection to home. And uh, I was brought back here. And I really don't have any regrets, quite honestly. There is something pretty unique and special about the West Michigan community. And I think everyone that either moves here or grew up here and then found themselves coming back is aware of that. But uh, in general, I love living in West Michigan and I love being able to contribute to the greater community in whatever way I possibly can. A lot of times we hear of people um, growing up in a certain area and then moving out to expand. And it's fun to see people come back to this to this area. And specifically, it sounds like you mentioned the lake was a large um, factor and the environment on this side. Was there anything else that played into your decisions or? Well, you spoke to it just a little bit, uh, but I think that it's our duty if we are from a specific area, if we see any holes or if we see any inequities, I like to think that we, yeah, it's our duty to give back to our area in ways that we have expanded our own personal networks, our own personal growth and development to then help utilize it and collaborate back where we came from. And that was honestly the large, probably the largest poll that brought me back here. But in general, I I know, and I kind of spoke to this a little bit, but Chicago has vast opportunity, but because it has vast opportunity, there's lots of people who are trying to you know, seize that and take advantage of it. Whereas West Michigan, in my opinion, is an untapped market for young professionals. And, you know, I think that many of us, especially those of us involved with HYP really see that. And it's, again, our duty to say, okay, look at all this experience and options that we can have to really grow our network and grow ourselves professionally. And this is the place to do it. And, you know, it's usually defined this area by 65 plus, for example, but not really anymore. There are a lot of young families, a lot of singles really starting to take control of the area and innovate. And I think that's something really special and I'm happy to be a part of it. One of the statistics uh, is West Michigan is a leading place for innovation and business growth, especially startup growth um, or entrepreneurship. 
the numbers are a little bit down this year, but we can plead uh, exceeding circumstances. However, you mentioned right. uh, duty as a community member and opportunity. And those are two powerful motivators instead of identifying a community outside of like totally different or finding a different place. And there's definitely a place for that. Um, you There's a strong tie to the ownership that you should take of the place where you grew up, which is amazing. Absolutely. How has that played out uh, in your professional and uh, and volunteer or personal life? Well, my suspicions were kind of correct. I moved back to the area in uh, September of 2018. And as far as a young professional in West Michigan, I like to think my life has been pretty great. Uh, I'm 26 years old and I'm already the director of my own department. I sit on a few nonprofit boards. I'm very heavily involved. And I mean, I one did that because I in general have this personality of a hustler. I always have been. But like I said, there are areas in which we can all say, this is what I want to do. These are my goals. These are my objectives. And I'm going to pursue it. And I think honestly, a big part of that is one, understanding the local culture, which is not that difficult to do. And a big part of that too, is because everyone in this area is super accessible. And I mean, seriously, you could call any executive you wanted to, let's take Herman Miller, for example, if you said, I'm a young professional who wants to work for your organization, I love your mission, I love what you represent, and I want to be here, that executive will take that meeting with you hands down. Everyone in Holland recognizes the ability of lifting people up, especially young professional perspectives. It's there. And if you want to start growing your career and you work hard and get yourself in the right circles and in front of the right people, it can be done. And I like to think that's what I've done. I've wanted to be an integral part of the nonprofit community. And we can get into it a little bit later, but the relationship between corporate and nonprofit partnership is so amazing here. And it's a niche I needed to be a part of. So I got myself in the right spaces. And then anyone can do that too. And would the key you see, as you kind of touched on, be reaching out? Is that something you used heavily or I'm sorry. Uh, with the key to growing in, in those goals for you, it sounds like a big part was reaching out. Is that something you intentionally applied uh, strategically? And would you, and obviously you recommend that to other young professionals or um, what were other, some other strategies? Yes. 100%. So my number one strategy and quite literally everything I do is relationship building. And it doesn't really matter what it looks like. It could be coffee, it could be dinner, it could be making sure that you look at an events list and you see that the person that you wanna to speak to is going to that event and you make a point to have a conversation with them while you're there. Every conversation that you have, you should have networking in the back of your mind and you need to have a set, like um, remember those little Rolodexes that people used to have and it would have like a name on it and then a couple facts. So you could always, if you're a salesman, for example, to keep rapport yep. going. Do your research on LinkedIn or online, any other place, and make sure that you, one, come prepared with things to say when you go to talk to this person. And then two, don't be afraid to go have these conversations with these people. They want to talk to you. More often than not, I am always faced with people who are eager to want to explain how they've got there or explain their methodology or explain how they rose to the level they're at, rather than saying, I'm too busy right now. If anything, I've never gotten that answer. But the biggest thing is we get in our own way all the time. We are concerned with whether or not we're going to be, you know, 
saying the right things or if we have imposter syndrome, for example. No, it's just always remember that there are holes that you can fill as a person. There are conversations that need to be had that are integral to your career with those right certain people. So just do your research, come prepared. And I can guarantee you that if you strive towards relationship building, you're going to get where you want to go. I literally, that is how I function my career. And um, I'm very blessed to have tons of connections all because I made a point to private message someone on a Zoom call last year. You know what I mean? It's any way you can feel innovative, you'll find it. Yeah. It's uh, becoming more of a practice to message uh, someone on LinkedIn and just request for a 10 or 15 minute uh, phone conversation or a lot people are super willing to just share where they've been and talk about themselves a little bit and, um, and come from a perspective of sharing um, advice and mentoring. That's terrific. Uh, yeah. Um, so what gets you out of bed in the morning? What, uh, what's your source of um, energy, inspiration, pride, motivation? What gets me out of bed? Lots of things <laughs> get me out of bed. But um, I would have to say that mostly it's the fact that time continues on and I'm not taking advantage of that time. Uh, I like to say that uh, when someone asks me who I am as a leader, as a professional, as a person, I am a lifelong learner and doer. There is not enough time, unfortunately, in this life to do all that I want to do. And I recognize that. So, for example, you know, I'd like to be an executive director by the time I'm 30. I still like to go to law school. Um, I'm in the midst of creating my own podcast, et cetera, et cetera. And if I don't take advantage of the time I'm given when I'm currently single, don't have a family, you know, I'm to me, that's time wasted. And don't get me wrong, I do sincerely value a work-life balance. I mean, don't push yourself so far that you burn out to the point where then you're not even taking advantage of the time. But time is an asset. It is the largest asset you have. And when we have the time and the energy to create all these little connections and create this web of network for each other, and, and you know, even individually, you need to get up and get moving. Uh, you've got your goals. Um, the only thing that you're waiting on is yourself. So time, time is definitely what gets me out of bed in the morning. And uh, so far it's, it's okay. Especially when it's 35 in the morning and not zero. <laughs> that helps a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Those little breaks in the middle of winter, like we're having right now are, are wonderful with some sunshine too. Um, so time is definitely a spur, especially when you have some goals to achieve, right? If, if, you're just getting out of bed, perhaps from a more nihilistic perspective of, okay, you know, why is life there? Then time is more of a curse than a motivator. Absolutely. And you know, what's interesting that I'm glad you brought that up too, is like millennials are a generation where in which we have seen more life-changing, world-shattering moments than almost any other generation. And it feels like it's back to back to back. And you know, it's a key question. How do you stay motivated? How do you get out of bed when there are these impending world dark clouds above you? But that's just it. It's the people who recognize that it doesn't always have to be this way. There is an alternative of future possibilities that we can pursue. And without us realizing that it takes just one person after another getting out of bed, these dark clouds are still going to be there the next morning. So with people like you and people like me and people like other young professionals or people who are up and on the rise, let's put it that way, who see that we can seize this moment and not have hopefully one more impending world doom, 
it, you know, we can do that and we can prevent it from happening in the future. To dive a little bit deeper, um, and there's, I recently completed um, the Enneagram personality type, and there's a lot of different personality types. Love the Enneagram. Talk about that more and whatnot. Yes, please. But people are definitely um, motivated by a lot of different things, and where they get their source of inspiration or validation or meaning in life come from all sorts of different places. And I want to dive into a little bit where does that um, sense of meaning come from in, in goals? Is it the sense of accomplishing something? It sounds like when you were networking and we we're talking about networking with people, you're really focused on developing the relationship, but also identifying where can I add value to these relationships? Where can I make them? And that's more of a community approach to, to building value and worth and meaning inside of life. Would you say that's accurate or perhaps what's more, what is the, the reasons that time is so valuable to you? and the relationships you're developing are so worth it? Well, uh, for starters, I am an Enneagram 3. Nice. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> and I mean, we uh, Enneagram 3s are more naturally inclined to be the, the advocate for themselves, the go-getters, the ones who aren't afraid to take on a challenge and proudly display that they completed it. Uh, but a lot of my background, especially when I lived in Chicago, I took on this whole different sense of self. When I went into my master's degree, I would argue that I was pretty self-centered. I had this idea that I can do everything myself. You know, I'm the one who's going to come in and save the group project from failing. I'm the one who can complete this. And, you know, your, whatever you could contribute, it couldn't possibly match what I could bring. And of course, that's an incredibly unhealthy mindset to have. Not and, unique when you're creating your own identity though. <laughs> it, true. Yeah. No, I mean, and that isn't, right. that's important to some extent, but if you're talking about community work mm. and community collaboration, you can't have that mindset because inevitably your ship is going to sink. So quite honestly, being in Chicago taught me this whole new sense of identity surrounding what it means to be in community and what it means to build community up when others around you are suffering or when others around you just need a hand, for example. So the value of relationships has always meant something to me. As you know, I mentioned a little bit, uh, you know, when you're creating relationships, you should always be creating them, one, just because you love to connect with others, but two, they should be strategic. So I, if I need something, I can call on a primary school teacher. I can call on a friend in a high place. I can still call professors that I had in my undergrad and my master's degree. But I do that because I recognize that not one person can do everything. And that took a long time for me to get there. But so my undergrad, my, I'm sidetracking a little bit, but it's, I promise it comes to an end point. Um, I studied interdisciplinary studies and social science. So and I've had to pitch this to different job recruiters because they don't understand what interdisciplinary means. So what interdisciplinary means is that you have the breadth of all the different social sciences, but yet you deeply dive into the depth of one. So I chose sociology in my undergrad to dive deep into, but yet I was able to say I got an intense education in both you know, psychology, criminal justice, economics, history, and all of those perspectives inform my one perspective. And I think it's super important that everyone has an interdisciplinary mindset when they approach a project, when they approach relationships, when they approach professional development. Because when you're analyzing an issue, one single perspective or deep 
one form of death is never going to solve it. Like think about a global pandemic. Dr. Fauci alone can't solve those problems. You need distribution. You need healthcare services. You need, I mean, think about all the different things that go into solving that one issue. So when it comes to relationships and what it means to me and what it means to have that communal mindset, achievement looks different to me now. And while I learned those skills in undergrad, I didn't fully humanize them within myself until I actually had people who showed me what it means to define achievement by lifting others up. And that was huge for both my identity as a professional, as a person, and how I saw my outlook in creating community change. So in conclusion, I, uh, I deeply value now as a part of my achievement and identity, community building. And it's, it makes a huge difference in also having you get up in the morning because it's not just about you. It's yeah. about looking forward to the collaboration with others. And that, that's huge. So uh, yeah, that is I, the value of achievement in relationships has changed throughout my career, but now it's the healthiest it's ever been. Amen. That's beautiful. Um, it, I, I don't, I hesitate to speak in generalizations, but I think this is uh, pretty accurate. It's, it's really easy um, to always want the world to be your perspective of the world. But when you realize that, hey, my mandates aren't how the world is going to work because the world doesn't center around myself, and then you can be an active participant with everyone else, that is just a beautiful mindset. That's amazing. And that's I love awesome the way you that, phrase that too. That's yeah. great. And that's awesome that that you found that so early. And and I think a lot of us are always on a journey or on a journey to find that. And to some degree, we're we're uh, swimming upstream until we discover that. Well, you um, know, and that's a really good point too, Johannes. In that we are never not learning. We are never an expert almost at anything. There is always room to improve, always room to mm. grow. So whenever someone tells me like they're an expert, for example, at something like that, it's like, well. It, it, this is evolving. This is growing and changing. But, I mean, I will definitely look to you as someone who knows what they're doing, but just remember right. to humble yourself. There's always room to develop. I think this brings us really close to um, perhaps talking about dreams and desires for this area. What are you hoping to develop? What's the mark you want to leave in West Michigan? Or what do you hope West Michigan develops like in 10, 20 years, or maybe a crucial need that you're saying, hey, we need to address this now? So dreams and desires. Um, what's most important to me as a professional, and I'll separate them professionally and personally, I suppose. Mm. Uh, West Michigan, if you didn't know, is one of the most philanthropic regions in the country. And we earn that designation because we are one of the few regions in the nation that recognize the importance of nonprofit and, cor and corporate partnership for overall community happiness, health, and long-term sustainment. So when leading industries and nonprofits work together, we build a network of support that lifts up families and indiv individuals to achieve their full potential. So my honestly, and it could be corny, but my dream for West Michigan is that we never lose that outlook on the importance of community. There's a reason I moved back here, and it's because, again, everyone has time for you. Everyone sees your inherent value. Everyone makes an effort to go the extra mile to ensure their neighbor has what they need. And that is not the case in several areas around the United States and the world, frankly. And I want to be a part of the integral work that Holland does to make sure that in the future, we don't lose sight of what it means to 
look out for your neighbor and to look out for one another. Because when we don't do that, we have people suffering. We are only as successful as our suffering community members. We can't fully say that we are a community that embraces and accepts all and lifts everyone up while we have inequities. So when corporations see the value that they can utilize with their resources and partner with those that are expertise, that have expertise within their fields, it's valuable and inherently going to make a better community. And I hope that we can honor that legacy. But um, mm. if I had to go with uh, personally, it's, it's a combination of both the fact that we need to keep this legacy going, but I want to be a mentor, someone that can explain how I've got where I've gotten and the importance of staying where you came from and the importance of utilizing your skills once again to create a wonderful community around you. If there's one thing that the pandemic showed all of us, it's that there are intense inequities in all of our communities around the world. And it's, Holland's not immune. West Michigan is not immune. And we need to ensure that in any crisis situation, we are taking care of those people. And that that's, that's the legacy I'd like. And that's the dreams and desires I want is that everyone who needs help has a place to go and there are people to fill the help that they need. I really want to get back to talking about what philanthropy and charity has looked like during COVID, as I think you might have a really good pulse on that, or at least a closer perspective than many of us do, me in particular. But I want to come back first to this bond between corporate and nonprofit. And it, you, talk, um, you talked about it like it's really well established. I want to get a better gauge on where where is that? What are the keys to making that work? Where what is the status of this? Or is it just something you're hoping to continue, grow? Like, how does the bond between corporate and nonprofit really play out? And what are some keys to making sure that our businesses and our nonprofit or philanthropic organizations work well together? How does that connection get made really strongly? So I have my predecessors to thank for taking the initiative and pitching the importance of what it means to be partnering with nonprofits. That's the reason that now people who are in a development director position like myself, it, if it's not a new organization or corporation that you're trying to approach for help, it's, it's, an, it's like a no brainer. Some people are just writing the checks and understanding where it goes without any hesitation. And that is simply because while well, one, I think, our local nonprofits have done a fantastic job of one, ensuring donors that the money is going exactly where they think it's going. And two, really getting to the niche of corporations on what's what part of any particular mission is really important to them, which again, stems back to relationship building. When I'm meeting with a CEO and they would like to talk to me about my mission and what the CAC does, I make it a point to ensure that, well, here X, I have all of these things that my organization does. What niche within my organization most attracts you? Why? Why do you have a, a uh, excuse me, why do you have a connection to that? And let's talk about how you can use your resources to specifically help grow this program or give to this contract therapist or expand staffing, what have you. So I think in terms of establishing the importance, I don't know if it's a local culture thing. I don't know if it's just, again, seeing the value of dollars spent, but there 
there are serious data tracking that has shown that the relationship between nonprofits and corporations has created a better community for those who aren't as well off. So I don't know if that's exactly what you were looking for. I can expand on that just a little bit, but that was a loaded question. Yeah, I know it was a really big question. Uh, so for example, I found a study by um, the Grand Rapids Business Journal, and they looked at the most generous counties in Michigan and ranked Ottawa County as the second highest, Kent County was the sixth, and Allegan was the 10th. Now, where does this community mindset of, it's not, it's not always right off the bat, clearly as the study shows, there's a ranking or that you can definitely rank a community's mindset or a county's mindset around philanthropy. Whereas charity could be, you know, I give when I feel like it, um, and short-term philanthropy is a really long-term approach and a commitment to philanthropy um, is unique. How does that, how, in your mind, how does that become established and so dominant? Is it because other businesses are doing it? Is it a peer pressure sort of thing? Is it the types of culture? Like what are the main drivers behind creating philanthropy? Because you know, next I'm gonna go with, okay, how does that affect the community we live in, right? Because it's a cycle of some sort. That, that's a really good question. So, and you're exactly right. There's a difference between just giving $20 whenever you can versus a culture of philanthropy. That is so true. So I like to think this area in particular is a combination of religious values and the idea of, like I mentioned, giving back to where you grew up. And a lot of the families that have significant impact here and resources to make change they are spanning here for generations. And how you span out equitable giving throughout generations is you instill a culture of philanthropy within your family for generations. You understand mm. the importance of not only giving to individual charities, but giving to several different organizations that create a network around a family that's suffering. So for example, uh, when a family is struggling with hunger, they're not only struggling with hunger, they're probably also struggling to uh, get affordable transportation. They're probably also struggling with uh, their kids getting to school on time and doing well in school. They're probably also struggling potentially with some mental health issues. When you're creating a culture of philanthropy, you understand that no one person struggling suffers from one certain inequity. And when our nonprofits do a really good job of explaining that to those that have the resources to fix, quote unquote, or in general, improve the conditions for these people, that type of mindset then is passed down. And the importance of taking care of those who don't have the means to take care of themselves from their parents to their children to their children after that. And I think, again, it is a combination of uh, the unique values we have tied to maybe religion in the area and also the importance of um, giving back to where you came from. And I'll circle back also to, because I remembered a part of your question that you asked me, um, as far as COVID goes with giving and what that looked like for our area. So uh, I'm pretty involved with the Lakeshore Nonprofit Alliance and they put on uh, an event once a year called Nonprofit Next where they report on the state of the nonprofit community in our area within the past year. And while well, I can tell you a couple things, one being that we needed our nonprofits and our community more than ever. As you can imagine, when there's a crisis, nonprofits are the ones to fill the gap for those that can't make ends meet. 
And let me tell you, nonprofit services were utilized to the nth degree during the pandemic. And to, to the point where, I mean, for example, we didn't have any um, FI spots uh, anymore, forensic interview spots to help interview children after they were sexually abused. We had, to we had a severe waiting list to help those kids and to get them in on time. And of course, when that happens, I would go to donors and ask them if they could, hey, do you have any more um, means to help me hire a short-term forensic interviewer to get these kids off the waiting list? They understand the need and they're there for it. But in general, uh, people understood what nonprofits meant to our community during the pandemic and saw exactly how we were being utilized and by which communities and by what people. And I can tell you right now that in terms of giving, and uh, as Patrick Sisler reported in Nonprofit Next, nonprofits had a better year last year in terms of donations than the year before. And why is that, right? It's because people who had the means to give recognized that their dollars meant more than ever last year. And it went like, for example, my quote unquote tagline when I was talking to donors was child abuse doesn't stop and especially doesn't stop during a crisis. And we need you to help us get through this crisis. And lots of other organizations had the same pitch and quite honestly, though it's not even a pitch because it's our lived experience this is what's happening we understand the need and donors were there to fill it but bottom line it's that if you pitch a culture of philanthropy for years and years and years eventually those who are doing the work instill this mindset into the families then then pass it down for years and years and then you involve your friends and your other networks in your mission and your passion and at, by the end of the day you have a huge community network of people who all understand the importance of this cyclical in in important collaborations it, and it's beautiful it's wonderful that people actually like how do i phrase this um, philanthropy in general is not logical it is all based in emotion. Why would people give the resources they worked for away? It's because it doesn't make any sense. It's all based in quite literal, this empathetic, sympathetic nature to just help others. And how, how beautiful is that? And so for example, when I talk to donors, I'm not talking about logic. I present them with stats and I'll show them why their funds are important and where they need to be applied. But when I'm trying to appeal to a donor's inner mindset of what their fears are or why they're attracted to my mission or what inspired their first gift, that's all emotion. And that is at the end of the day, why these relationships and partnerships work. I'm appealing to a sense of emotion and appealing to a sense of self in you that feels the need to help others. Beautiful thing. And it's, it's also a beautiful thing that, uh, the lifespan and the continuing lifespan of philanthropy of the culture of philanthropy in this region seems to only be getting stronger and not the other way around being desensitized. Absolutely. And I would also point out, I would also point out too, that, um, that when you look at it from um, a taxes versus a philanthropy standpoint, that's, that's a wonderful thing to say, Hey, instead of getting waiting to the point where I need to get quote unquote forced to help these inequalities, why don't we be proactive about it and do it from a philanthropic standpoint? And that's, that's also a beautiful thing. But what I wanted to circle back to, um, or circle onto a little bit is I was uh, browsing the United Way um, website, and they provide a lot of reports. And I think this is the um, a community uh, 2019 annual report. And they highlight um, the givers. Um, and I, I'm not sure if it's, I think it's confined just to um, 
those involved with the United Way, because they mentioned like the, um, the uh, Tocqueville Society of Members. But then Tocqueville. Oh, Tocqueville, yes. Uh, pardon me. And then they bring it down all the way to leadership circle members, uh, Women United members, and attended YLS or Young Leader Society events. Um, and the, the whole reason I'm bringing this up is they're splitting out the types of people that are really recognizable for donate, donating. Um, and in your mind, you mentioned there was big families that were really instilling a culture of philanthropy and donation and charity over many years. Um, but what about young professionals who are aspiring similar to yourself and want to make a large impact? Where is their place right now? Where is our place? So, yes, uh, United. Well, for example, every annual report, it's our duty to report data mm. and giving statistics. That's what an annual report does. Right. But um, young professionals in particular, we are at a unique spot in terms of philanthropy and what it means to our lives right now. So whenever I speak to millennials who are involved or want to be involved in philanthropic work, it's, I don't have the financial means right now to give, but I would love to volunteer my time, whether that be on a service project or on a board. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong. I love it when I see young professionals who are taking that initiative and being on boards and offering perspective and leading service projects. I think that is absolutely wonderful. And and frankly, as I mentioned several times, there's a need for it and people will do a lot to get those people who are taking the initiative in their circles, trust me. But I think that one thing that a lot of organizations in our area are missing out on, and even I could uh, be doing a little more work in this, quite honestly, it's the importance of grooming the next generation of givers so that we can provide millennials with options that are one, affordable to financially give, and two, once we start climbing the corporate ladders and making the, you know, a decent amount of money to support ourselves, what it looks like when we can donate a little extra. It's, it's about now, you know, social media marketing. It's about trying to get into focus groups of conversation to learn what, why do you give? Where do you give? What motivates you to give? If you could give financially, what would that look like? And Young Professionals Place, quite honestly, is helping people like me structure giving for the next 10 to 15 years. Because the people who are in the Tocqueville Society, for example, those, you're right, those are the families that have the big impact, have the generational, generational philanthropic understanding of giving, but they're not always going to be there. And they're fortunately helping their kids and their grandkids understand the importance of what it means to still always be in that Tocqueville circle. But when you don't grow up with that culture in mind and don't have the resources to give at the way that those Tocqueville members do, it looks different. Mm -hmm. But the young professional place, honestly, is uh, how do you see the future? What do you see our society's greatest problems are? And are you willing to give $5 a month to go towards that? And quite honestly, uh, the research that I've done in some you know, initial conversations as well, you know, subscription services are a really interesting niche that can play an important role in the nonprofit world. So obviously we all know how they work. You 
take 10 bucks out of my account and I don't miss it. I think that that is a good future in giving. And I am going to try to tap that market a little bit. I'm playing with the marketing now a little bit, but that honestly is the secret sauce to me at this point is young professionals need to decide collectively as a culture, which we're, I think we have defined it a little bit, what means the most to us and what's the most affordable way to give. And truthfully, in the same way that you don't miss your Netflix subscription, I'm going to take $5 out of your account each month to give to children who are getting sexually abused. And again, you won't miss that. And yet you're still fulfilling your philanthropic goals. Mm. So I think that that is going to be the future, quite honestly. That's wonderful. And bringing that up and sharing those ideas. And that's a really awesome direction. I wish you the best success in, in that. Uh, as, as a parting comment, Alexa, uh, what would you like to leave our listenership with? Um, and any parting advice, or perhaps even um, contact information if you're interested? Parting advice. Uh... You've shared a lot of advice, by the way, so far. So don't feel too obliged. <laughs> Oh, well, that's, I was going to say, what else could I add to the conversation? Um, I did, I did briefly mention it, but a lot of people at our age, again, have this level of imposter syndrome. I don't deserve to be here. I am not qualified to be in these circles. I have so much more to learn and to do and to see before I would ever be considered as a serious professional. Uh, I deal with those issues. People everywhere, again, deal with those issues. However, I would, I don't know if you can do that maybe in therapy, talk to a therapist about it, talk to your close network about it, talk to your friends about it. These feelings are normal, but you shouldn't be letting them stop you from achieving what you'd like to achieve. And when you do, again, time is the most valuable asset. You're wasting time petrified in your fear of what could possibly happen as opposed to taking the risk and the initiative and just seeing, okay, maybe what would possibly happen for the better if I did take this risk or take this leap or appear on a podcast and ask for advice. You know, it's things like that. It's don't waste an opportunity because you don't think your skills or what you've accomplished is worth it. When you do that, you are wasting the most valuable years where you have the time and the energy to hustle, even if you don't have the financial means to hustle. And I would hate to see more young professionals not taking advantage of one in our community where there is vast opportunity to grow uh, your career and to seize the moment. But, and the, but the last thing I'll say is, again, Learn how to get yourself in the right conversations with the right people, whether that literally be sliding into uh, a Facebook message, sliding into a LinkedIn situation, or if it's just, again, private messaging someone on a Zoom call. Any opportunity you can take to talk to the person you need to talk to, do it, because they will they will speak to you. And uh, that's integrally important to your success and growing your network and your community. So. That's what I'll end on. <laughs> Perfect. Terrific advice. Thank you so much for joining us for uh, this episode, Alexa. And uh, I appreciate you uh, very much taking the time to share these thoughts with the rest of the network. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I'll quick say, if you do want to reach me, I am, again, I want to be of help in any way that I can. My email is uh, A-R-E-D-I-C-K at C-A-C 
www.sarah-ottawa.org. Or you can give me a call at uh, 616-393-6123. Awesome. And this has been another episode of Hot Off the Hip. Have a great night, everyone. Today's episode features the Ed and Nancy Hannenberg Children's Advocacy Center. Ed and Nancy Hannenberg Children's Advocacy Center's mission is to provide child-centered prevention, advocacy, and team intervention in investigation, assessment, and treatment of all child abuse, inclusive of all children and families. Thanks to all the generosity in our community, we are able to offer all services free of charge to victims of child sexual abuse and their families for life. One out of 10 children are victims of sexual abuse and Ottawa County is no exception. To learn more about the work of the CAC, head to their website at www.cac-ottawa.org or check them out on social media.